Our national conversation about conversations about race is brought to you by The Rachel Maddow Show on MSNBC. Watch Rachel as she breaks down the big headlines for the local threads that tie them all together. It's The Rachel Maddow Show, not Raquel Maddow, but Rachel Maddow, covering America one story at a time, weeknights at 9 Eastern, only on MSNBC. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to our national conversation about conversations about race, the bi-weekly multiracial podcast where we discuss the ways we can't talk, don't talk, would rather not talk, but intermittently, fitfully, embarrassingly do talk about culture, identity, politics, power, and privilege in our pre-post yet still very racial America. You could say all that or you could just call us about race. I'm Raquel Cepeda. And here with me in our Panoply Studios in New York City are my co-discussants, Tanner Colby. Hello, Raquel. What up? Hello, hello. And our very special guest, Aisha Harris, culture writer for Slate.com. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So, what's up? <laughs> what's up, Tanner? <laughs> not much, not much. I, what's um, new? What's new? I was in Chicago for the uh, Chicago Ideas Festival for a conversation about race panel. That really? was with other discussants. Really? Yeah. I, so I, you cheated I, on I, us I cheated here. on you with other discussants. <laughs> but I'm al- I will always come home to, to my discussants. <laughs> Who was on the panel? DeRay McKesson and Crystal from The Read and uh, a woman who's an academic from Northwestern University whose name is slipping my mind right now. And Jay Smooth, our friend Jay Smooth was oh, the wow. moderator. So that went well. Wow. Yeah. So that was interesting. That was interesting. How long were you there? Uh, just a couple of days. Chicago's really cool. I do like did Chicago. You have any, did you have any pizza? No, I had steak. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. What's up with you, Aisha? And welcome. Thank you. It's so nice to finally meet you. Yes, same, same. Life is good. I dropped this uh, piece this week that we're going to talk about, and that was consumed a lot of my time for the last few months, and I'm just really relieved now to have it all out there. So, And because of you, and actually in honor of you, I want to tell our listeners that because the word diversity <laughs> is going to come up a shitload, a hell of a lot yeah. today, I think. I would encourage our listeners just to make this kind of a fun discussion about race, right? Of course. It doesn't always have to be like so, like so, you know, down and out. Yeah. You have to, we have to laugh or just get drunk to keep from crying, right? Exactly. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So if you're over 21, if you're over, well over 21 and you're not driving, I suggest that you're not listening to us in your car. I suggest that you take your shot glass or whatever you like to drink, and every time we say the word diverse or diversity or something mm-hmm. associated with that, you take a shot. And let's see, Cody, can we can we try to keep count? I'll give it my, sh- I'll give it my best. Because yeah. I already said it a couple times. Yeah, yeah. yeah so p- people should really be, like, <laughs> sloshed right now. <laughs> so what's up with me? Let's see. I just came back. I left right after the show. The next day I went to London. My husband was showing a film at the BFI at the British Film Institute for a screening of my husband's film, which I didn't attend because I've already seen it three times, called Fresh Dress. But I had a chance to like hang out and go and you know explore and talk to people in London. And then we went to Brussels and that was really fresh. And I actually just walked mistakenly uh, by the only Cuban restaurant in all of Belgium. And it was off the hook. And we actually had our pre-anniversary uh, dinner there. I On the 17th, we made six years married and 12 years deep. Congratulations. So that was a lot of fun. And our son was there acting crazy and traveling. And it was just amazing to see London and Brussels, but also see it really through his eyes. Mm. He's only three. So that was fun. 
And uh, now I'm back. A little jet lag, but I'm happy to be back in this room with you guys. So, folks, it almost feels like we're driving down a different lane on that same slippery highway of erasure we embarked on last episode when we talked about the rampant gentrification and the unbearable whiteness of journalism and publishing. But this time, we're going to lament how nondescript writers' rooms are, not to mention how little above-the-line juice non-whites receive in the television industry. So let's cue in the collision course. I like doing sound effects every time. So Aisha, I, I was expecting you to say that was a wonderful introduction. <laughs> so, um, so Aisha, you recently wrote a piece for Slate, a really amazing, really well-reported piece called, uh, and I'm not just saying that because Slate is our overlords here at uh, the Power Race. I just really, really enjoyed the piece. Thank um, you. It was called uh, TV is More Diverse Than Ever on Screen. Why Not in the Writer's Room? About just that, the lack of diversity. In the writers' room. So, first off, for listeners, for our listeners who don't have experience or knowledge of how the TV, uh, you know, wheels get greased before our favorite shows get on the air, mm-hmm. can you kind of explain, like, give us a primer? I mean, I guess I can talk a little bit about the just the trajectory of a writer, which it all varies. Everyone has a different story, a different path to how they get there. It's not like you're a lawyer and you go to law school. Writers have all different types of backgrounds, and and they have different ways of getting there. For I feel like the most sort of average story you'll hear is that, like, I was a writer's assistant. You know, I did some odd odd jobs, like, or I kept sending out my script. I pitched my scripts, and eventually I got into the writer's room, and then I worked my way up. You're a staff writer. You usually start as a staff writer. That's kind of the lowest rung of the the ladder. And then you kind of work your way up from there to story editor, to a producer, executive producer. Executive producer, showrunner is a type of, it's the Shonda Rhimes's, it's the Lee Daniels. Those are the people who are creating the shows and more or less just kind of deciding what gets on air besides the studio overlords. For people of color... There are some who are able to get there in that way. Uh, a few of the people that I t- spoke with for the article kind of had that sort of, they were assistants, they did, you know, internships, that kind of thing. Over the 20, you interviewed about 20 people or so, right? Yeah, I mean, r- between writers, uh, showrunners, I also interviewed diversity program heads. Yeah, that was that was their general trajectory. Then we have the diversity programs that all of the network studios, major network studios have. And those programs, they vary a little bit, but overall the point is that they are trying to get people of color in the writer's room because it's a lot more difficult for people to get in. Essentially, uh, someplace like NBC or ABC, they have one spot on each of their TV shows that is reserved. One spot out of how many? Uh, Well, a general writer's room could have anywhere from like 7 to 12. Uh, 12, I think, is a little bit on the higher end. Um, It's it's more likely to be around like 7, between 7 and 10. And so it's one spot. And then ostensibly the other spots are supposed to go to anyone else, but it tends to be like white males. And that's across the board, whether it's – I think comedy is a little bit more um, white male heavy dominated than, than drama. So, yeah, you have that one spot. And what the studio does is that that one diverse spot is paid for by the studio rather than coming out of the budget of the show. And so you're called the diversity hire. And when that happens, essentially, you are that person. You're the, the one person in the room. And you're looked at in that way. From the people I spoke with, that was kind of... The feeling is that you are being paid for by the studio and you're it's you're considered a safe person to take a chance on because it's not coming out of the budget. 
So that's they have ju- nothing to lose, basically. Right, by they having have, you around. Mm-hmm. Exactly, they have nothing to lose. So, so you like dressing almost. You like like they like the pretty pot, the pretty uh, potted plant in the corner of the of your of an office, basically. Yeah, and yeah. uh, uh, the the harsher term would be you're the token. So I guess is this is this the reason why so many of the th- programs that we are watching on TV are so homogenized? Yes, okay. <laughs> I think that's a that's a huge part of it. I do think that. Like I said in the article, things have gotten better on screen and you have all of these shows now. And it's not just for black people. We have shows like Jane the Virgin. We have uh, Ken Jong now has his own show, Dr. Ken. And you have like Quantico that uh, began the season with uh, the Bollywood star Priyanka Chopra, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. So, yeah, things are getting better on screen. But that's that's what you see. That's what we all just generally see on our TV screen and behind the scenes is where it really matters because, like I said before, that's where we decide where these stories get told. Mm -hmm. So my concern, and I think the concern of a lot of people, especially those who are writers, is that, well, yes, we're seeing this all on screen, but if we're not having that same increase behind the scenes, then it can just as easily soon fall backwards because they're the ones who make the decisions. And, you know, White people can make the decisions now to have shows like Quantico, like Scandal. But if they see something else that's more exciting, Hollywood does this. Like Friends, I think, is an example of a show that in the 90s, as one showrunner put it, like in the 90s when Friends hit, everyone wanted to create a show like that. So after Friends, you have all these shows about, you know, 20-something white people who are all friends and they're trying to like make it in a big city. Like you saw lots of shows come like that. And then now with Empire, you're probably going to see a lot of shows like even Lee Daniels now I think has another show coming that sounds a little bit like Empire. It's about a girl group. So you Hollywood just likes to copy itself. It could just as soon diverge back to the way it was where it's just white just white and male and not it as It almost is. I mean, according to the WGA, a Writers Guild of America stats, the current stats, it's just getting less and less and less diverse. Yeah. The rooms. Yeah. I mean, so the, the latest stats from that are actually, so the, the latest ones they have are for the 2013-2014 season. Mm-hmm. So they don't have any current up-to-date stats yet. I think maybe in the next few months or maybe next year we might hear more about that. So this that would have been before we had Empire and before we had... Jane a Virgin. So maybe it's a little bit different. Maybe it's gotten better since then. But again, the stats between that season and this like two seasons before the 2011-2012 season, they fell backwards. So there's like a there's a little bit of a forward pr- progression and then it just kind of falls back again. And you saw this with the 90s there's a resurgence or there's a resurgence of lots of black sitcoms in the 90s and then in the aughts right around the time when they got rid of UPN and and CW merge and all this other stuff like you just saw this dearth of really just any diversity in major network uh, shows isn't it feel like we're like going down the same like i said before we're going down the same like road well, it is because i mean this is exactly what i wrote about about the advertising industry In my book, you have these industries. You reference law, engineering, medicine. Mm -hmm. In those industries, there is a credentialing process, and you go through that process, and if you have the credential, you can do the practice. In these types of industries, there's no credential, and so they are entirely social. It's all who you know. And so the problem is is that you're trying to impose a bureaucratic affirmative action process on a pipeline where there is no pipeline. Right. And that's the challenge here. And 
so far that it would appear that it doesn't work. Well, you know, it's crazy, too. Like, okay, we see more people of color on, um, you know, being portrayed on television. And, you know, there are no shortage of white men that are writing about these characters. So why is it inherent that white people can write multidimensional characters, of, you know, about brown and, and black and non-white people? Yeah. But in order for brown and black and non-white people to write about their own, you know, their own community and about white people, they have to be put through such a ringer. Like, basically prove, if you will how authentic they are. Right. If well, you will. And authentic it, is a really loaded word. Yeah, so... I w- authentic. Like, that I've, deserves its own segment, to be honest <laughs> with you. I've always wanted to go back because I've been hearing that word, you know, come up a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot. So authentic as a writer or just authentic, authentic as, like, as a writer of color? Authentic, because, I'll, I'll give you an example. Yeah. I was, I was supposed to write copy, actually wrote copy for a, a commercial for a show that was going to be airing in some major network about Latinos that were all the showrunner was a white guy. Everybody on the staff was a white guy. I was the just brought in afterwards. Yeah. And I was supposed to write about how white about Latinos, how we're how they're different, even though we may, you know, speak the same, you know, language, but we speak different dialects, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But the guy who was instructing me said, you know, it needs to be he kept on telling me it needs to be authentic. You know, he's a white guy, but he lives in Washington Heights. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the Dominicans tell him how it's supposed to be. And he and, and this is by how what he sees around him. And basically kind of like it's very inauthentic way. Yeah. Of like telling me how to be myself. Yeah. It's, it's... And, 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 and rep my own community. So oh. I, he ended up. Right. You know, I wrote the thing. I ended up saying it's too serious. You know, it needs to have more fire or whatever. And I'm like, I just don't think I'm the right person for you. And the show got picked up and it aired and it did all that. So that keeps on happening. Yeah. Not I, only to me. I'm not a victim. It happens I, to a lot, a lot of people. I would submit there's two reasons for this. One is the the white male obtuseness of, oh, you're Mexican, so you write about Mexican stuff, right? That's yeah. that's half the equation. The other half of the equation is that the diversity industry is 100% hoist by its own petard on this, in that they stop making the rationale. The rationale for promoting black and people of color employment at the end of Jim Crow was fairness, justice, equal opportunity under the law. These people have been denied opportunity for hundreds of years, and we have a reconciliation, we have a restitution to make in order to balance the scales. And then, honestly, the, the reason why that fell out of favor was at, by the end of the, at, that argument came along at the end of the 1960s, which is a time of plenty. It's like, okay, we can share the pie if we have to because the cities are blowing up with riots. Ten years later, after ten years of recession in the 70s, the pie was getting smaller. So the argument was that, that you have to redistribute wealth and opportunity for the sake of, of historical restitution fell out of favor. People didn't want to hear it anymore. So then the rationale shifted. It's like, okay, well, we'll talk about the business benefits of diversity. And so Raquel and Aisha are not being hired because they deserve equal opportunity and fairness in the workplace. They're being hired because they bring diversity and diversity helps and better decision-making and all this crap. And so when you walk... We had an email a couple weeks ago from a young, I believe, Dominican girl who feels bad that she doesn't speak Spanish because when she's hired for the job, there's this expectation that I'm a native Spanish speaker and I'm just not, so I feel inauthentic and all that stuff. It's like 50 years ago, no one would have expected her. They would expect her, hey, speak English. Now, because of the diversity rationale, it's expected, oh, be you're everybody. the Spanish... Be, be no, be, be your authentic ethnic... Yeah. Be, yeah. Do your ethnic thing. And the yeah. diversity rationale has totally played that up and it is 100% hoist by its own petard. But be authentic in, in a way that's suitable and comfortable for us. So if you're, for example, that Latina, the white people... you need to be Sofia Vergara. Right. 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 Yeah. Uh-huh. Interesting. I never thought about it from quite that perspective. But 
yeah, I, 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 I like that sort of um, analysis of that. I think that's the thing is that it's so tricky. You walk this tightrope because one of the things that each of the writers I talked to has talked about was like how they want to be in the room to be that voice because if you're if you're not in the room then you can't really trust white people to tell your story authentically quote unquote however you want to call that you get mm-hmm. these stereotypes you get these kind of broad brush strokes or like you just like you don't get a full character on the one hand they they see the benefit of being there because there have been times from their experience where them being there has meant that something does not get into a script that could be construed as stereotypical. On the other hand, they're like, but yeah, at the same time, I'm a writer, and all writers want to be able to tell anyone's story. Right. And and so it's tough to do, and it, it's even tougher if you are that diversity hire. If, you, if everyone there knows that you're there because you went through a program or because the studio is paying for you. And and the, the crazy thing about it is that like people want to call it affirmative action but like these programs are really competitive. The ABC Disney program I think is like the most popular one because they pay you no matter what if you're in the program whether you actually get staffed on a show or not. Like it's not guaranteed that you'll get staffed. Mm-hmm. So that's the most popular one that people apply to. And they only choose about 8 out of 2000 applicants. So it's not like these writers are not talented. It's not like they don't deserve to be in the room. Oh, sure. It's just that. But that's what people think when they're when they see them as a diversity hire, because they're paying for you. The one woman that you spoke to ended up, you know, turning like, you know, people talking about her being Sanders and practices into a joke. Yes. Which I didn't think was even funny. Yeah. Um, I thought it was kind of fucked up, to be honest with you. And well, then you have yeah. the other extreme, where it's like Wyatt Sinak, who's like, yo, I feel empowered to be able to say what I think. And this is kind of like messed up. And I'm not really um, comfortable with this Kane sketch. And he's told to fuck off. Yeah. By, by John Stewart. So, I mean, allegedly told to fuck off. Right? Yeah, allegedly. But this is, this is, what kind of environment does that really breed? And, and, and are the writers really able to make change, affect change, when they're kind of being brushed off in that way? Yeah, I mean, that that was another thing. Like, there were a lot of people I spoke to, and, and there, while I was lucky enough to get people to speak on the record, there were a few who, understandably so, didn't want to speak on the record. I can say that I did have a couple of people who talked about being in a room or knowing someone who was in a room, and, you know, there might have been, like, one or two of them who were not white or male, and they suggested something, but because the showrunner was white and because, like, most of the room was white, they got outvoted. Like, and right. it was still... So, I mean, even when you're in that room, there's no guarantee that your perspective is going to be listened to. It could easily be brushed off, which uh, it's just... Overall, it just seems like the diversity programs, yes, they're helpful, but the problem is is that we re- they're relying way too heavily on it. And even the diversity program heads that I spoke to also said the same thing. They're like... We are here and we, we are doing what we like. We should be doing what we want to do. But at the same time, we can't be the only ones doing this. Like there has to be more going on. I want to throw out a question for our listeners. Um, have you been, whether you're in creative or in corporate world, have you been a diversity hire? Are you a diversity hire? And if so, has it helped or hindered you? Here's what I would say. <clears throat> One of the things Aisha wrote in the in the piece um, you said in reference to NBC's diverse staff writing initiative, uh, you said that well-intentioned initiative in practice turns into an act of tokenism. I would submit that 
maybe every word in that sentence or most of the words in that sentence are incorrect. I would say that it was never well-intentioned in the first place. And then I wouldn't say that it, didn't, it did not turn into an act of tokenism. I would say that it was tokenism hmm. from the word go. My wife worked on Wall Street for a while, which the misogyny and the sexism just waist deep. And so there were all these like, women empowerment initiatives, women on Wall Street, when we're doing this and we're going to mentorship and we're going to do that. And she went to all these meetings. She very quickly realized that if you're at an investment banking meeting and there aren't any dudes there, you're not at an investment banking meeting. You're at something else. And that's what I saw time and time again when I wrote about the advertising industry. I would go to all these multicultural job mixers and seminars and this, and it's all black people, no white people. And I'm like, this is an industry built on relationships that's 90% white. And we're at a job seminar that's 90% black. Am I the only person here who realizes that's fucked up? Yeah. (laughs) And so the reality is, is that if you are involved in anything that has the word diversity in it, you are not in the actual, you're not in the television industry. You are in the diversity industry. The diversity industry is a business that Mm -hmm. is attached to corporate America. It is attached to the advertising industry. It is attached to Hollywood. It is attached to the news industry. One of the funniest moments in all of my researching this, there are all these diversity counselors that work at these ad agencies. You've got these rally crowds. We're going to tear down the old boys network. And I would ask them when I met them, so how did you get your job? And they say, oh, a friend of mine recommended me. So the average, the diversity industry is its own old boys network yeah. that has attached itself to corporate America for the purpose of selling 12-step racial justice solutions, right? <laughs> but the, it's really the, the closest analogy I can think of is the security theater we go through at the airport. It's diversity theater. It's a pageant. Oh, yeah. And people of color are the background scenery in the pageant. And that's all that it is. And actually, they found that to be the case in that study that WGA, the Writers Guild of America, recently released, which kind of led to a a flurry of all these articles about the lack of diversity. Yeah, I would agree with that, that I do think that it's really just paying lip service to this broader idea that diversity is good and that you need to have it. And I would agree that all of this could easily apply, even though it's Hollywood, it could be easily applied to any other industry, really. Like, And you, you even... You'll even notice as the years go on and we talk more and more about diversity, there are now increasingly more industries, law, uh, the medical fields, science as well, where all of a sudden you're seeing diversity manager as like a position. And a lot of people would argue that like you're, you're, you're there and you're there, but you're like you're there to be the face and not to be anything else and to be like integrated into what is actually right. happening with the rest of the industry. You know, I never understood what exactly, and I've met with so many diversity people, honchos, what do they do? Diversity managers? Like, what do they do? Because I remember speaking to yeah. one, and I, I just broke down one day. I was like, honestly, like, what do you do? Because I kind of want to do that. I just want to just manage diversity and get a fucking you know, fat check here, for that. You know, here's, I'm down. Here's, here's the interesting thing, though. Uh, when it comes down to the act, like, the, the diversity manager can cheerlead for diversity, they can promote inclusion, they can do all the stuff. But when it comes down to the nuts and bolts, here we talked about diversity being a rationale for a job, you bringing your, you know, unique perspective to the writer's room. When it comes down to the nuts and bolts of the law, you actually cannot say that someone's race or gender provides a qualification for a job. Because otherwise, you'd be able to say that being white male is a qualification for a job. So... 
when it, so you can promote diversity as being wonderful up to the point of the actual hiring decision. And the actual hiring decision, you can't. And that, that, that push comes to shove. It, it, it's a very fine line with the law. But, but the thing is, is that Hollywood operates on its own... It's, it's on his own stratosphere of hell. Yeah. I mean, if it's that like if that was I mean, obviously, that's generally the case. But like these studios are specifically these spots are meant for a person who is of color, who is a woman, who is LGBTQ, who is uh, even talking older. about the diversity people like that are actually spots. working like no, no, no like the, the ones that they're giving. The, the yeah, the ones that they're giving the staffs like that one spot for because all the diversity people I've met with and I've met with quite a few over the last 15 years have all been women. Yeah. And every single fact, last one. In fact, every every diversity, I only spoke with, well, I spoke with three of the network diversity program heads, and they were all women. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. All, yeah, all women and women of color. So then yeah. I, already, I remember one time just breaking down when that, it was just like, what do you, what, like, how does it, I don't, what do you do? Like, what do you do? Yeah. And she basically, she's online now, but it's like, you know, she's like, I feel like I'm, and in my words, kind of trying to scale a, tr- a Trumptonian size border wall from, you know, picking somebody I actually really like and I think would be good to bring a different face, a different voice, a different mm-hmm. perspective to the show in some way, shape, or form. But I, if it's a person of color, I never get to get them to that level. Yeah. I mean, you get, you get stuck. Unless they're the person du jour. So, so she basically had to leave. But I don't ever see, I still, to this day, even after having her explain it to me, I really don't understand because... You're going to have hundreds of thousands of people of color who want to write, for example, want to be in a writer's room. So is it your job to look at the applicants, the 2,000 applicants, and just decide who the eight are? Like, I I don't get it. Yeah, I mean, I think I... Oh, you go out there and try to meet people that are talented. Do you try to take... To, to, to mentor and take and like you know take this young uh, writer and and put them with somebody who's older and you know try to but if you're the diversity coordinator you're not Matthew Weiner you're not Vince Gilligan you're not the person with the leverage right. to mentor that person and bring them along you said in the piece right. the common theme among writers I spoke to who bypassed this whole diversity process mm-hmm. was that they all had powerful mentors who saw their talent and potential mm-hmm. and who went to bat for them yeah. so did you find that most of the people of color who are taking positions of power behind the scenes or on camera are coming in through the front door like like most of the white they're not going through this because what i found in advertising was the people the people of color who were successful in advertising saw early on how the game was played and they went in through the front door with the white people mm-hmm. they weren't standing in the diversity line waiting for their number to be called mm-hmm. and there's all these people all these 22 year old morehouse kids and howard kids and like they're not in the pipeline they don't know any white people they, they don't know how the game is played they're standing in the diversity line waiting for their number to be called and it's fucking tragic because yeah. they're wasting their whole summers on these internships that mean nothing right. and all the time that could be put into where you're supposed to network and how you're supposed to build your portfolio, they're standing in the diversity line, and it's crazy sad. Well, yeah. interestingly enough, the showrunners that I did speak to who were showrunners of color did go through one of the diversity. They started off in one of the diversity programs. In fact, that was kind of how my sort of research started was I first reached out to people who had been in diversity programs. They made it through, and, and they eventually, after being in the diversity programs, did, like, they you know, were able to prove to whoever was the higher up that they deserved to be there. And they made their way up. And now they're Danielle Sanchez Witzel. She's now the showrunner for the Gerard Carmichael show. Before that, she was on the New Girl. She's been in the business for 15 years now. And I think Mindy Kaling, too, went through one of these diversity programs, if I'm correct, before getting on The Office. I think actually The Office was like her being 
one of the diversity programs, someone might want to fact check me on that. But when I, I, I did, a, I actually produced something that went to pilot. And the only way I was able to even get in the door was because I partnered up with a white guy. Yeah. Well, everybody liked. Well, here's the other thing, too. Liked, culture he liked he was into culture so Mm -hmm. but i remember like being in those rooms and sitting down and like basically i had i had the the angles i had the pitches the guy was also a kind of sort of a celebrity so he just didn't want to do the work so i would you know give him the ideas whatever he presented his ideas my ideas but nobody would even look at me unless they were looking at my boobs (laughs) um so you know what i mean so it was like a really you really felt like no one's listening. Like like the invisible woman, you know what I mean? Like nobody was listening. But I find that it would have even been worse. I wouldn't even have gotten to that point if I if I would have gone through a diversity. I would have been a diversity hire or right. gone through that chain. Well, yeah. I, I actually wrote a piece for Slate a year and a half ago when Sashir Zamata got hired for oh, yeah, Saturday Night Live, that. pointing out that she w- went to UVA. She came through this Lily White Upright Citizens Brigade pipeline. And when Lauren Michaels goes looking for people of color to be on a show, he looks for the most assimilated people of color possible. And so I went and did a, a, a survey. Shonda Rhimes and Mindy Kaling both went to Dartmouth. Kerry Washington went to Spence. Viola Davis went to Juilliard. Paris Barkley, who's the showrunner on Sons of Anarchy and now Bastard Executioner, went to a private prep school in Indiana called La Lumiere and went to Harvard. Franklin Leonard, who runs The Blacklist, the screenwriter, went to Harvard. Key and Peel, both mixed race, raised in, in largely white environments, both came from Upright Citizens Brigade majority white pipeline. Baratunde, Harvard. Baratunde Thurston, Harvard. <laughs> yeah. Tracy Ross, mixed race daughter of Diana Ross. Well, that's already, Diana Ross. I mean, that's what, nepotism. Yeah, yeah that's that nepotism. Already Speaking of which, plug, plugged into Plugged into the system. Now that you do have, I mean, like Anthony Anderson went to Howard, Taraji B. Henson went to Howard. I mean, you do have people coming from across the color line and muscling their way in. Right. But it seems to me, and what was your experience? Like, yeah. the industry's not changing. People of color are getting in and, and whether we call it code switching, assimilation, selective cultural age, whatever word we're putting on it, they're learning how to navigate these white pipelines at an early age and coming in the normal way. All these diversity pipelines that are that are like selling snake oil to people of color and saying, oh, just we'll come and we'll get you in through this side door over here is, is nonsense. Meanwhile, <laughs> be a white guy and get a job in the writer's room. You could be like Bush. Yeah. Uh, second Bush number two. Yeah. You could be a straight C student at Yale be you know drinking partying all the time it doesn't really matter like you don't have to have that kind of pedigree yeah yeah i yeah i mean i i think it depends uh i i feel like especially in comedy a lot of them even if they didn't go to harvard they probably did like ucb or did right they, right, know, right there's there's all of that too that culture of like we're seeing right the numbers of just general viewership go down year by year right incrementally but still they're going down more people are looking at stuff online so I feel like it's getting kind of replicating what's happening on TV. It's kind of starting to happen online as we try to monetize content. You see a lot of the same things happening, like, for example, with this uh, new Baz Luhrmann uh, show about the 80s hip hop that I just don't understand still why he's the showrunner or the guy or the creator. I don't know. I don't even know what's going on there. Mm-hmm. Or you have like really poorly executed shows like, you know, The Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, right? Yeah. As far oh. as at least a storyline. Yeah, I mean, I really like it. People like it, yeah. I I think it's, like, I don't like it, but, you know, we can agree to disagree here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As we monetize, it's becoming more and more and more nondescript, and also now it's it's replicating itself, like what's happening in the industry. Where do you see this, you know, according to your research, where do you see or where do the people that you talk to see the television, I mean, the future of television going? In terms of 
online, like streaming between Netflix and Amazon, they actually have higher numbers of diversity behind the scenes than the networks do, which gives me hope that like they they are starting out from from the get go, like being better about these types of things. And I do think because now we we everyone's talking about how it's it's peak TV now, like we have so much television. So I hope that that means that we are going to get despite the fact that Baz Luhrmann is doing a 1980s hip-hop TV series. I think I hope that that means that we're going to get more voices telling their stories on online content. I mean, you have web series, right? Web series have, for better or for worse, you've had lots of things to choose from if you're a person of color or any any underrepresented demographic that you can find thanks to web series. Now, the transition between like making your own scrappy like web series to actually turning that into profitable content is like a very shaky road that people are still trying to navigate. Mm -hmm. But I think the future can be bright. And it seems like from the showrunners and and the writers that I talk to, like things, even if they don't see like they're definitely nowhere near close and it's probably never going to get great. I think I don't it, think it's ever going to get good. Yeah, I mean, I think I want to be more realistic than to just wrap everything up in a Tiffany's box I think and it's a nice gonna, pink bow. I think it's going to get better. I mean, Aziz Ansari has a new series on Netflix coming out, which I'm really excited about. And granted, he's already a star. I think that's another thing you have to talk about is like, you know, like you mentioned before. NYU. Yeah, NYU. And, and also, like, like you've talked about, these are people who are already famous. That's another thing is that, like, all of these shows with these have people who are already stars. You have Taraji P. Henson and Terrence Howard were already famous. You don't have, like, these out-of-nowhere people of color who are starring in these shows. So that's, like, a whole other thing. But I do think we're, we're moving in a, in a positive direction. You know, before we go to the word from our sponsor, how many times have we said diversity in this segment? Uh, let's see. We got... You with nine, Aisha with 14, and Tanner with 11. That's it? That's, that's it? it. Uh, yeah, that's a miscount. That's a miscount. <laughs> that's a miscount. Right. Win a more accurate number from our listeners. <laughs> okay, so for our next week's B-side, please, please, please let us know. Actually, continue to send us words to, re- to replace diversity with. Also, diversity people, what do you do? And writers, creatives, and even people in corporate America... Has it helped or hindered you to be a diversity hire? And how so? Please, please, please send us voice memos. We love AC's voice, but we really want to hear your voice too. You could hit us at showaboutrace at gmail.com or on Twitter or on Facebook at showaboutrace. And now a break to hear from our corporate sponsors. Every weeknight, MSNBC's Rachel Maddow breaks down the big headlines for the local threads that tie them all together. Sure, that's a lot of searching and it takes a lot of work. But even in a country this big, there are no local stories. Your life and what you see from your front porch is directly connected to the national news. Watch Rachel as she connects the dots and covers America's news one story at a time. It's the Rachel Maddow Show, weeknights at 9 Eastern, only on MSNBC. Thank you for uh, uh, sticking with us. I hope you're not too drunk because we have a very exciting second segment about coddling that Tanner is going to steer. I wish I could have a steering the ship sound effect. We're not, this is not morning radio. (laughs) Not morning radio, we don't have sound effects. So, Yes, Tanner. All right, so this week, Wesleyan University student government voted to slash funding for its school newspaper after a recent controversy. A conservative student wrote an op-ed 
criticizing the Black Lives Matter movement for some of its tactics and various other things. And this caused an outrage on campus, and there was a huge demand on Bard's student body, and now they are flashing the funding for the student newspaper. And all of this is of a piece of a trend that we've been seeing reported this year. started really with Jonathan Chait's essay about the rise or the backlash or the uh, recurrence of PC culture on campuses. The Atlantic Magazine came up with a piece uh, last month, The Coddling of the American Mind, talking about how this ob- an obsession with microaggressions and trigger warnings was coddling our children and resulting in all sorts of mental problems that they're not able to cope with trauma. Uh, on, on Vox, a professor anonymously posted an essay saying, I'm a liberal professor and my liberal students terrify me. And there are no shortage of examples like this we see with the Wesleyan newspaper. Laura Kipnis, professor at Northwestern University, had a Title IX charge filed against her for writing an essay about the state of sexual politics on campus. We've seen lots of commencement speakers be canceled because students disagree with their views. And so there's, we've had this trend reported of a PC uh, rise and backlash on campuses. And of course, critics of this are saying that obviously the plural of anecdote is not data. This is just a bunch of random examples. There are over 4,000 institutions of uh, higher learning in this country that serve millions of people, and we've pulled together about 30 examples. That doesn't necessarily make a trend. So let's first take the, that piece of this. Is this an actual trend, or are we, we taking a few examples and blowing them out of proportion? We'll, we'll defer to our younger uh, panel member today. Well, how do you, how are you so sure she's younger? Okay. I'm, 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 I'm kidding, I'm, I know. Fair, more recently yeah, of, of college. Well, yeah, so I've... So I graduated from undergrad six years ago, 2009. So it's been a while since I've been on a college campus, and I don't know if I feel qualified to determine whether or not, yes, for sure, this is a thing happening, or Mm. no, this is just people blowing it out of proportion. I do recall, though, being in college and not really ever having this experience of, of people getting really upset. Like, there are definitely things that happened on campus where specifically with black the black community where the paper might say something or they might invite i think ludicrous came to to our came to perform or do something and people were upset for some reason i don't really remember what the reason was but like it wasn't like people were calling for anyone's head or like being mm-hmm. very you know it it didn't feel oppressive in a way and as if you're like shutting off this conversation at all so i kind of tend to lean more towards the idea that it's not really a trend at colleges i don't think that there's a lot of kids who are are actively being that angry and knee jerk about it i'm not so sure I'm not so sure. I don't have the answers. But, I mean, my daughter is in college. Mm -hmm. And I do notice when I kind of peek at her on her pages that people are a little oversensitive about certain things. She's really, really, for example, cognizant of addressing people according to their preferred, you know, gender pronouns. And she's really, she really tries to do that. Mm -hmm. And maybe one time she slipped up and called somebody a she. and, And then people just went, like, nuts. And it was like, okay, like... Just relax. It's a a fucking mistake. We all make them like Mm -hmm. chill. I mean, but it's just what's just one anecdote. It's just one example. And I feel like, yeah, it's a trend. I think that it became kind of a hot thing. The phrase du jour coddling because Obama used it when he talked about when he was asked about 
what he thought about Ben Carson's idea mm -hmm. to um, basically defund any schools that show uh, intense leaning to one or the other side of the political political metronome, whatever one other, one side or the other. Right. And he was like, "This is that's bullshit, basically, in my words, mm -hmm. because you know it's, we don't need to coddle our children. We we need to expose them to different, you know, to basically a Socratic pedagogy." Where, mm -hmm. you know, you listen to different views. Sometimes you're changed by them. Sometimes right. you're informed by them. Sometimes you don't agree by, you know, with them. But it's, you know, it's not really a representation of the real world to, you know, have trigger warnings about everything. Right. And also trigger warnings are a psychological thing and we're not qualified to really right, right. address that. I don't, I don't know. Flipping through all these articles, of course, they find the most absurd examples of PC overreach to illustrate their point, whether or not they're proof of a trend or not. But the, the, this one is so genius that it, it should just be in a museum or something. In April in Brandeis University, the Asian American Student Association sought to raise awareness of microaggressions against Asians through an installation on the steps of an academic hall. The installation gave examples of microaggressions such as, aren't you supposed to be good at math? I'm colorblind. I don't see race. But a backlash arose among other Asian American students who felt that the display itself was a microaggression. And the association removed the installation and its president wrote an email to the entire student body apologizing to anyone who was triggered or hurt by the content of the microaggressions. And that is just <laughs> brilliant. And one thing that I've noticed just looking broadly at, at the history of race in America is that you have very real horrible, violent things that are done to people of color. And like, you know, John Lewis marching across the bridge at Selma and getting nightsticks and like rocks thrown at his head. And the response to those threats is very sober and direct and like, okay, that's what it is. I'm going to face it. I'm going to deal with it and take it head on. The same with, with Black Lives Matter going on now. You have a very real threat to black lives. And the response has been, you know, policy proposals, lobbying of Clinton and Sanders, and it's just very real, a real response to a real threat, one could say. And then you have these sort of so minor and like tiny, tiny things, microaggressions, whatever you want to call them, by definition micro, and the response is so outsized and hysterical. Why the fuck is that? Why would you have a sober response to a real threat and a hysterical response to a non-threat? Where I'm not a psychologist. Why does that happen? I'm not a psychologist either, but I feel like just by looking at observing the world around me, I feel like it's just a bunch of little shit. It's like a pressure cooker. And I feel like sometimes, you know, something small, like I'll give you an, an example. When I was at a, at a university in Pittsburgh, I remember one of my friends, white girl from Pennsylvania, I, would always tell me every day, I hope my babies look like you one day. I hope my babies look like you one day because she had, was going out with a black American guy from, from Ohio. I hoped it, touching my hair every day, every day. And I would let it go, let it go, let it go. But just one day made me snap and it really wasn't her fault because mm -hmm. I already was used to it. But it's because of like all these different things that was happening throughout the day. And it just made me like, you know, a couple of racial things. It, actually, I, I was walking by um, a McDonald's and somebody who worked there ran out and said to me, I always wanted to ask you question um are you a half breed so that kind of thing just i just had a full day of that right. living in pittsburgh you know it's not it's like the least diverse city in america i think at least when i was there i think you know I, and correct me on that re, um uh, listeners if i'm if i'm wrong like i went to uh college in in the early 90s mm -hmm. so that you know that was going on then and i kind of exploded at her going back to that you know to, to that pressure cooker thing while other more important things were happening in, in pittsburgh right. i was still like and i think it's just that kind of idea it's like a pressure cooker what I think is different from is that now you have, 
you know, uh, you have um, social networking, you have, you know, yeah. you can air. When I exploded, I just was like, oh, fuck, I got very upset. And then I, I apologized to her because I understood where she was coming from. And, you know, people are who they are. You have to meet them where they're at. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, but then with this other article that I read in, in the Atlantic, there was a woman who was uh, during Hispanic Heritage Month or Latino Heritage Month got into some kind of fight with this white kid about, you know, football mm-hmm. or fuchibol. Is that and, is that really a, a thing that like non-Latino people can't say football? No, I've never I mean, I don't represent every Latino. Well, but, I, yeah, I obviously but, uh, but but I don't I don't really care. I mean, I was very like taken aback by this person claiming football aka soccer in that kind of you know way but i feel like when i was reading in between the lines and i went to the original oberlin um blog there were other things going on i think there was like a pressure cooker situation i i agree with the social social media thing being a a huge part of the reason why maybe this is has become such an to some people an explosive thing that has been happening more and more because from all those the stories that we read, at least for most of them, it it feels like instead of like just confronting whoever did the mm-hmm. um, the thing that they were offended by, they just went straight to social media or went straight to like complaining about it to the higher ups. Which I don't know what it would have been like twenty years ago, but for me, and maybe just because I'm just like a non in general, I'm a non confrontational person. I would go to the person as opposed to like try to make it a bigger thing than it might actually be. And social media allows you to do that. You can go on Twitter, you can email back and forth and then expose those emails on the internet for other everyone to gawk at. And actually to and it's interesting now because you have I mean, young people already go through, you know, identity issues, right? That's what college is for. You're kinda working it out. And then you so you have identity politics. Then you have the whole, you know, phenomenon online about people you know, creating these fake kind of personas on their Twitter feeds and Facebook and so and, and Instagram, et cetera, et cetera. And then on top of that, they put their beefs online for people to recontextualize them and like yeah. add their own project onto them. And then it becomes something completely different. It becomes not about that then. Anymore, it becomes no. about everyone else and yeah. their interpretation of what it what happened. Yeah, it's yeah. just ridiculous. You know, I talked to a bunch of people in advertising, uh, writing my book, and I talked to two people of color working at the same horrible Lily White ad agency, and one of them would be like, the microaggressions are eating my soul, and the other one people were like, yeah, it's all right. You know, and you you know, it's the same people in the same building dealing with the other, so assume that the the white racism in that environment is constant, right, then you have these two wildly different perceptions of it. One of the interesting quotes, I think, in the the Coddling of the American Mind piece in The Atlantic, they quote the Buddha, our life is the creation of our mind. Uh, And they also quote Marcus Aurelius, life itself is but what you deem it. And if we take white racism as a constant, you know, we talk so much about racism and institutional racism and privilege, and we don't talk about people. You know, I've met so many people of color who enjoy those teachable moments with white people. They like them. Right. They think, like, oh, I get to, I taught a white person how to be around black people today. And I'm I'm a good citizen. I'm proud of it. And, you know. The way that people process and deal with these things, some people are defensive, some people are introverts, some people are extroverts, some people, every slight gets to their soul. Some people 
they, it just rolls right off their back. Me, you, you honestly cannot insult me. I don't. I can't. Honestly, can't say how I would deal with these aggressions if I were a person of color. But just as a person, shit rolls off my back. It just. I don't. Well, it makes you more approachable because I can say when I had that little get together in my apartment, a lot of my girlfriends that are women of color were talking to you and they were saying, and they, you know, and a friend of mine told me, one in particular told me after you left, like, wow, he's the easiest white boy. She meant to call you man, but, you know, That's white fine. boy is what we it's say fine. in the hood. Um, <laughs> he's, he's like the easiest white boy he, that, you know, that I've ever spoken to. He's like, it's just easy to talk to him. He's, he's kind of cute. <laughs> Because he's like so, he had those button down shirts and, and he's just so approachable and I could talk to him about it. And I was like, yeah, if more white people were just like open to just talk shit out. And, you know, he says things sometimes that put me off or I say things that put him off. We're not going to like sit here and like fight each other. But you just learn from it. You discuss it. You address it. And then you move on. And that's right. just how you grow. It shouldn't be victimhood culture. It should be defense, like defensiveness culture. Like that's mm-hmm. what's kind of ramped, rampant now. Right. I don't know what I don't know what is going on, but I don't know if it's a trend or not a trend. But I know that a lot of the professors that I know wouldn't go on record with me, you know, to talk about what they really felt mm-hmm. about their students because they want to keep their jobs. Yeah. yeah. And the well, ones that did write something were like just three or four people on my Facebook. Right. Well, there was a response essay on Vox. This is a result of the insecurity of faculty jobs. Children have always been sort of full of drama and, you know, seeing the world in, in black and white and, and red and, and so on and so forth. That's always been true. Uh, I think there is an insecurity in the academic job market. That's certainly real. We've seen that. And I, I'm fascinated by this, all the study doing on the, the generation of kids that are coming up under helicopter parenting. And they just can't handle anything, right? They yeah. can't handle a bad grade. They can't handle doing their own laundry. They can't handle, so they certainly can't handle racism, misogyny, or anything else. So I think maybe all of those factors are coming into play. I mean, that seems like the bigger problem, maybe, uh, from the professors that I know. And my father's a professor, and he, like, he doesn't complain a lot. But, like, when he does talk about his students, he does say, like, yeah, I have parents emailing me questions about their kids homework and like i was like yeah. what i i never never I've ever f- had that happen i have a friend father. who is a university chaplain he was a university chaplain uh, like five six years ago and with during the orientation materials for orientation week they actually had to put it in the program 8 p.m the parents leave now because <laughs> no because the parents were coming to like the parties and stuff it's like no this my parents dropped me off Gave me 20 bucks and said, bye. Yeah. We're going to, you know, go on vacation now. And, and, and yeah, that's crazy. And and just to, oh, it's really weird and bizarre. And with my, I have a daughter in, in, who's at university now, and we're very, 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 very close. But I just let it go. I let her deal with what she needs to deal with. Because I feel like if you're coddling a child, a young adult, you're not doing anything for the next generation. Would you, if she were to, like, tell you something where someone... I, microaggression or something happened to her at school that she like felt uncomfortable about like would you want to do anything about it or what would you tell her she feels uncomfortable all the time like i'll tell you right now she a white girl from the midwest who goes to who's in a class said to her that she wasn't a real latina because of her accent oh i've i've gotten the same and she's not and she's also she's also half black black american and she's not black enough because of her hair so I ask her, well, how do you deal with that? Well, how does it make you feel? You know, so how did you address it? Because I'm not going to tell her, fucking punch that bitch. I'm not going to say that. But how do you address it? Speak up for yourself because I don't want you to carry that 
because one day if you keep on carrying all those things, you're going to explode. So just address it. Mm -hmm. Because if she has the balls to say that in a class, you should be able to defend yourself. And she does. That's good. Yeah. So is this a trend? Let us know if you are on college campuses, either as a student or as a professor. Let us know. Send us your anecdotes, and we will turn them into data and try and have a more in-depth... A more scientific a more conversation. Sci- <laughs> a, a, a scientific discussion about this, uh, rather than just giving our uh, half-cock thoughts. Because it is, it's this topic that's everywhere, and yet it seems to be totally inconclusive and amorphous and pseudoscientific, and nobody really knows what's going on. So send us your thoughts, emails, voicemails. Let us know what you think, and we will pick this up again next week on the B-Side. And please send them to showaboutrace at gmail.com. You could tweet us or you could Facebook us at showaboutrace. But we really would love to receive your voice memos on this so we can hear your voices. We're going to wrap this up now with our final segment called Yo! Check This Out, where we give our listeners tips, recommendations for whatever we want them to look at, whether it's a book or an article, show, or whatever, whatever it is. Do you have anything you want to share with our listeners, Aisha? Sure. Um, Probably I I went to the Toronto International Film Festival last month and one of my favorite movies there, it was a very dark week, like all the movies were incredibly dark. And this one is also emotionally upsetting, but I think it's really worth seeing and not just because my friend is actually the author of the book that the movie was based on, Beasts of No Nation. It just uh, came out last week or two weeks ago on Netflix. I have to say... That is the shit! It's so, 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 so good. And it's just powerful and moving, and Idris Elba is terrifying, and the the boy, Abraham Atta, who's never acted before in his life, he was found in his village. He's from Ghana. He's just amazing. Like, incredibly beautiful to watch. And it is on Netflix, but if you can see it on a big screen, do. It is, like, Kerry Fukunaga's like directions cinematography so gorgeous so like yes I like Netflix it's great if you have a huge TV go for it but I'd say if you can see it in theaters well you uh, just recommended one of my two recommendations <laughs> sorry <laughs> uh, no 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 great minds great minds think alike I really love that book that book is just really amazing mm-hmm. and I want to give a big shout out to Idris man you really killed this yeah he, you really killed this so what do you recommend uh, mine is a place-specific recommendation, so I apologize for that, but it was the only cultural event I've had in the past couple weeks. Uh, <laughs> no, while I was in Chicago, I went to the Art Institute, and they have an exhibition uh, called Making Place, the Architecture of David Ajay, who is the architect designing the new African-American museum on the mall. And um, interestingly, I've actually done a lot of research into architecture because the whole conceit that all of American culture comes from black people is actually... Is one exception, and that's architecture. Architecture is the white man's jazz. All the major influencing figures in American architecture are white. Anyway, so David Ajay, uh, one of the uh, leading architects, and it's a great exhibition of his work. So if you're in Chicago, check it out. All right. Well, since I wanted to recommend Beasts of Donation, but uh, Aisha did it. Uh, (laughs) My second recommendation is actually in London because I just love, love, love the Tate Modern I was actually just going to go to the Mark Rothko room. That was my original plan because Mark Marin suggested it, and I'm a big fan of Rothko. And I went into the room, and it was beautiful, and I actually liked the way they display his artwork. 
it evokes a lot more emotion than the way that they display it at um, the MoMA in New York. There's something really dark and beautiful, and I like dark, which is why I like Beast No Nation. Mm-hmm. I like that kind of emotionally upsetting, like, like confront something! But what really, really, really had me open was a special exhibition called The World Goes Pop. It's going to be up through January 24th of next year. And if you guys are in London, find yourselves in London, please, please, please visit the Tate Modern and pay particular attention to room three, Pop Politics. That was my favorite room. Our producer is AC, Billy D. Williams Valdez. Our research assistant and tech maven is Cody Carvel. Thanks also to Laura Mayer and Andy Bowers at Panoply. You can see its entire roster of captivating, compulsively listenable podcasts at iTunes.com forward slash Panoply. You can find links to stories and other things we've discussed today on our website, showaboutrace.com. You can follow along with the conversation or join it yourself on Facebook or Twitter at showaboutrace. Or you can email us directly, even though we prefer voice memos, at showaboutrace at gmail.com. Check back in two weeks for the B-side of today's episode to hear your thoughts on these topics. And that's it for now. Thank you so much for joining our national conversation about conversations about race. On behalf of Aisha and Tanner and the ever Miss Baratunde, I'm Raquel Cepeda, and we won't stop until racism is over.